Welcome to the podcast of ideas. This is a recording of the debate, Do We Need a Green New Deal?, which took place on Sunday the 3rd of November 2019 at the Battle of Ideas Festival in London. Our partners for the debate were the City of London Corporation. The debate is introduced by the chair, Phil Mullen. In 1933, uh, soon after his inauguration, that the American President Roosevelt launched the New Deal programme uh, for jobs and prosperity, it was called, uh, in response to the Great Depression. And drawing on this title and its generally positive reputation still these days, people on both sides of the Atlantic, and mostly though not only from the left and the centre of politics, have been promoting a Green New Deal, and that's our subject. First proposed in Britain and America, I think, uh, just before the financial crisis, its more recent versions seem to have been gaining a lot more uh, traction. Uh, You may have heard the news this morning that uh, the Labour Party, as well as the Green Party, of course, um, has been adopting elements of the Green New Deal uh, for inclusion in its manifesto um, for the forthcoming election. Maybe the Lib Lib Dems as well. Um, Maybe the Tories as well, as we'll hear. I mean, basically, there's a lot of enthusiasm for the Green New Deal. And and what it is, is by targeting a range of green initiatives to combat climate change, supporters say what they want to do is not only protect the planet, but also to tackle social, economic injustice, inequality, and insecurity. And some even see the Green New Deal as an answer to the productivity slump. So I think it's fair to say there's still not a complete consensus on the benefits of a Green New Deal, nor on what it should comprise. So this morning we've got very, four very knowledgeable panelists um, to discuss whether we do need a Green New Deal, what form it should take, and the potential consequences of the proposals that are being made. Um, I'll introduce the speakers in the order they will be speaking. Um, I'm sure you're all familiar with the general format. They'll be speaking for a few minutes each. Then it'll be over to you for questions and comments uh, and uh, soliciting the responses from our panel. Uh, First to be speaking will be, on my left here, Angela Francis. She is the chief advisor on economics and economic development for the WWF, which is part of the world's biggest conservation organization, the Worldwide Fund for Nature. Prior to that, early this year, she'd been chief economist at the Green Alliance think tank. Uh, She's also a member of the IPPR's Environmental Justice Commission, and with great timing for our discussion, that organization, that's the Institute for Public Policy Research, along with uh, Angela's WWF, they jointly published an essay collection just a couple of weeks ago, uh, which is titled Putting Putting People at the Heart of the Green Transition. And if you've not seen that yet, it's a very good overview of the ideas behind the Green New Deal, and there's a link to it on our uh, website, the website for this session um, on the uh, Battle of Ideas website. After Angela will be Daniel Benami on my right here. He's a journalist for many years, many different publications, specializing mostly in the areas of finance and economics. Uh, He's the author of several books, but including a most relevant for this morning's discussion, a book called Ferraris for All in Defense of Economic Progress. And I think it's fair to say Daniel adopts a a critical stance on the uh, uh, politics of environmentalism. Then... Thirdly, we have Sir Roger Gifford. Uh, He is a senior banker with uh, SEB, which is a long-established Nordic financial services group. 
Roger was Lord Mayor of London back in 2013, and he is at the moment chair of the recently launched Green Finance Institute, which is a government-supported but independent organization, uh, which I imagine he'll tell us a bit about in his comments. And fourthly, uh, we have Professor Vicky Price. Um, uh, she is Chief Economic Advisor, Board Member at the CEBR, which is the Centre for Economics and Business Research. She's written many books, and her latest is just published, which she was doing a book signing yesterday, and it's an, available on the bookstall here, called Women Versus Capitalism, Why We Can't Have It All in a Free Market Economy. Uh, and of relevance to this session, at the time of the Stern uh, Climate Change Review, she was then, that time, joint head of the UK government's economic service. So four people with a lot of knowledge on this subject. Thank you. You, thank you, thank you, and thank you to everybody for getting up on a Sunday morning, coming to the debate. Very glad to have you here. Um, so my uh, proposition is, yes, we do need a Green New Deal. Uh, that's unsurprising. Um, I'll tell you a bit more about my, what my version of that is. But um, it's been incredibly exciting for people who've been working in the environment sector, and I've only been in it for five years, that we've got this mass movement of climate strikers and Extinction Rebellion activists calling for action on climate and nature in a way that we, have, we haven't seen, um, um, you know, hitherto. Um, but for me, um, somebody involved in politics and advocacy and economics of the, the change that we want to see, I recognise the risks of the Green New Deal um, being, only being taken up by the left. There is, a, there is an issue um, that we end up with something quite like what Phil described um, in the US not the first version, the Roosevelt version, which was like a national project, the second version of the Green New Deal, where we have a very partisan conversation around the Green New Deal. It's become a Democrat-Republican fight where the conversation is dominated by um, should we have debt fi financing for um, investment in environment or should we not? Um, and we really want to avoid that in the UK. It's, a, it's an unhelpful and a, 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 a kind of a dead-end conversation in my view. Um, the UK has had a cross-party consensus on the need for climate action, and that has been invaluable in enabling us to be one of the countries that's had the most um, climate ambition, um, the most um, commitments in legislation, and that has actually enabled investment to happen in this country because we have a, we've had a framework for um, how we deliver on the environment that people can um, make business propositions around and can understand where they can um, make money. Um, and we need to even more in this. We need even more in that. We need an industrial and an, and an agricultural revolution to respond to the scale of the environmental challenges we face. We need to change the way we eat. We need to change the way we live, move around, uh, the way we make and the way we use stuff. Um, I would say all of those changes are going to be better for us. They are good things that will happen, but they are changes, and changes are difficult. Um, so it's going to be about how we can redirect the economy so that firms are competing on the basis of using recycled and recovered materials, how they're designing things for better water, energy and efficiency use, how they're putting ecosystem management at the forefront of their business um, in a way that actually makes it a competitive advantage to them because their suppliers can see that they're more resilient, they are less um, likely to be um, blown up in some kind of consumer kind of outrage. It's, there's a whole set of things that businesses are doing that are now saying this is way, where we see our business being um, more profitable and um, having a, a long-term revenue stream. All those things have got to be done in a way that is just. So, as Phil referred to our publication, putting people at the heart of the transition, um, apart from whatever your moral preferences are for how the economy is structured, we are not going to deliver a change this big 
without bringing people with us. It will not work. It is not possible. Um, Conservatives have got there quite quickly on the agricultural side of this, so um, looking at agricultural policy and how farmers will be supported for providing public goods. And the just rural transition, which is a phrase you might not have heard of, but we will be hearing more of soon, is something the Conservatives have, have um, captured. Labour got their first, uh, you know, probably 10 or 10, uh, 15 years ago on thinking around just transition for the energy intensive industries and for manufacturing. But it's the same issue. It's the same issue. How are we going to take those sectors where people have got employment, income, livelihoods based around a sector that we really need to fundamentally change. How do we get those sectors to change and ensure that the people who are in them can see that they've got a livelihood and a way of making money afterwards and they, they're going to be supported with whatever training and advice they need to get through there. So that's why we commissioned the set of essays that, um, that Phil talked about, bringing together people like um, C. Ian Cheshire, who's um, chairman of Barclays Bank, Minette Batters, who's the president of the NFU, Andy Street, who's the Conservative Mayor of, um, of uh, West Midlands, talking about a just transition and a Green New Deal, along with all the people who, who normally talk about it. So the TUC, Anne Pettifor, who's a, an economist who talks about how we finance the Green New Deal, and the activists like Extinction Rebellion and Climate Strikers, bringing them all together. So they all say there's a whole set of people who think this is a useful conversation. It's not just people on the left who think we need to talk about this. Um, so I'm not really interested in the Green New Deal sounding like some sexy, exciting new policy idea that somebody wants to win an election with. That's not, that doesn't help me as, a, as an activist. I'm interested in it, it being an effective delivery tool. And so my definition of a Green New Deal or a just transition is the package of investment and policy we need over the next 10 years, and the next 10 years are really important, uh, that maximise quality of life, the economic prospects... Uh, and it's all underpinned by changes to the economic and financial system so that we're rewarding people who are improving um, environmental systems and restoring them as opposed to degrading them, which is what happens now. So how do we tilt the playing field so that we reward the things that we want to see? Um, other people have got other definitions, and we might get into that later. My definition does not extend as widely as um, universal health care and guaranteed jobs. I, that's not my version, but um, I, I know they're out there, and I think it's interesting to debate them. If, if what I've said sounds radical, it shouldn't, and I think it should be of interest to all parties. And the reason I think it should be of interest to all parties are very practical reasons. It is smart politics. If you are committing to get to net zero and restoring nature, which is what both parties have committed to do, there's pretty much no way you're going to deliver that scale of investment without also showing how you're maximising public benefit. There are lots of parts of the country that need investment. There are, bits, there are regional imbalances in the UK which are the worst in the OECD. We have, you know, sitting here in London, we have um, the highest concentration of wealth in the country and other parts of the country have not seen the growth that we've seen over the last 10 years. And that is um, profoundly um, unacceptable in a political, uh, in a political um, uh, particularly in the election cycle we're facing now, that you, the, the bits of the country are not seeing benefits from GDP growth. It's only, it's only concentrated in the, the southeast. Um, so you need to make, find a way in smart politics of making the things you need to invest in fix the other problems that you're facing in society, um, which include regional imbalances and uh, lack of productivity growth. It's effective policy um, to think about how you deliver things in a just way, because if you immediately got stuck in trying to change your um, fuel levies, for example, in a gilet jaune situation that we've seen in France so that you have to reverse it, you're not creating a space where electric car manufacturers can see that you know, people are going to be tilted towards 
making a, a different kind of purchase because you straight away get stuck in those kind of um, reactions where people legitimately are concerned that we haven't got another alternative here and this is just increasing my cost of living. So although on aggregate we know from the analysis that's been done the low-carbon economy, the nature-restored economy is better, we can't be starry-eyed about how we get through the transition. We can't just change from day to night and make these things, um, make these things fall um, unevenly on, on the population. So it's got to be about how we take away things like um, uh, fossil fuel levies but provide public transport um, or energy efficiency support or something else instead. So, and the final point about why um, this is necessary for politics is, is it builds credibility in the, in, for the private sector to invest. So there is no um, real technical problems that we have in terms of achieving net zero. What we have is a set of very, very hard policy choices. And the place, the country that starts to get to grips with those and says, well, this is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to start changing how we um, have people pay their electricity bills so that the people who've got the ability to put a um, solar generation or a heat pump in their house and are now paying less are not just getting away from all the enormous transmission charges and they aren't falling on the poorest people in the country. That's a social and economic problem that if we don't solve, we will have to, um, we won't get as far as we want to. So those things will actually create credibility for the private sector. Um, so that's, I think, my final point is that the Green New Deal for me is practical. Um, it's a practical technique for us to, to get to where we need to go so we can actually start fast, fast scaling the disruption and the new businesses we need to we need to create, and that is, um, if if any parliament, if any politician is saying they want to deliver net, uh, net zero, but they're not saying they want to deal with the social transition, I, I would say they're not serious about about doing it. Thank you. Okay. Uh, thanks, Phil. Well, I think the last thing we need is a green new deal. I think the green new deal would be a complete disaster for the economy. And to the extent there's a climate problem, and I think there's a climate problem, but certainly not a climate crisis, it wouldn't solve it. I think what the Green New Deal means in reality is a kind of super austerity. People complain about austerity, but it would mean austerity on a phenomenal scale, far, far worse than anything we have now. And that's despite all the, the talk about oh, social justice and how great it would be. I mean, I think Angela, I'm afraid, used kind of weasel words in terms of we need to change the way we eat. You know, we need to change the way we travel. But what's being said, be absolutely clear about this, we need to eat less, certainly need to eat less meat. That's what's being said. And if that's the argument, it should be said explicitly. We need to travel less, certainly fly less. If that's what is being said, it should be said explicitly by the proponents of the Green New Deal, because that's what they're arguing. And we know for sure, as it happens, that it won't... Uh, help in relation to climate change. Because we've had the Green New Deal has been tried for over a decade in Germany. In Germany, it's called the Energiewende, which is the Green New Deal in German, or not literally, it's the energy turn or energy transition. But in effect, it's the Green New Deal. They've spent billions and billions of euros on this kind of transition, and even in its own terms, it's failed. So we know it doesn't work. I mean, the bottom line in relation to the economy, and in fact, as it happens in relation to climate change too, uh, is that in order to uh, make the economy better, to make people more prosperous, what you have to do is to increase prosperity and increase productivity in particular. In other words, you have to increase the amount that each person, each uh, worker, produces in a given amount of time. So they produce 
five widgets per hour rather than three widgets per hour, whatever, you know, putting it, putting it crudely. We need to increase productivity. And the real disaster of the British economy, and in fact it's true of continental Europe and it's true of the US in recent years, is that uh, productivity growth is falling, not rising. So it is growing, but very, very slowly, at a very, very slow rate. Uh, and across the political spectrum, political parties have completely failed to find a way to raise productivity. Angela talked about investment. Probably other panellists will talk about investment too. Investment levels also are very low. So rather than invest to produce a more productive economy, uh, what they've essentially done is just pumped more money into the economy through quantitative easing, you know, central banks pumping money into the economy, completely failing to invest in the economy to increase productivity. That's essentially what we need to do if we're going to raise living standards. But what the Green New Deal advocates are saying, and this is completely explicit, if you read Anne Pettifer's book, Anne Pettifer is a contributor, as Angela said, to her uh, uh, recent report, she's completely explicit about this. What she is talking about, and what other advocates of the Green New Deal are talking about, is not increasing production, which is what I think is necessary, but decreasing consumption, doing the exact opposite of what is needed, decreasing productivity. So perhaps having hundreds of thousands of people uh, trying to uh, make houses more energy efficient, but in fact there's very little you can do with an old Victorian house. You know, maybe you can spend a few hundred pounds making it more energy efficient, but beyond that there's very little you can do. Uh, what they're really talking about is we need to consume less. It's really very much a central part of the Green New Deal from Anne Pettifer, from Naomi Klein in the US, from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the US, and they're very explicit about this, if you read carefully what they're saying, is to decrease consumption. Make you, the public, consume less. And maybe you think that's a reasonable thing to do, but I think that advocates of the Green New Deal need to be pretty upfront about it, if that's what they want. And I think it's very clear, having read a lot of them, their material, that is what they want. The opposite of what we need. I think we have real economic problems, we need to invest, we need to increase productivity. They're saying the opposite. We need to decrease consumption. That's what's being argued. In relation to climate change, I think there is a climate problem. We do need to come to terms with it. But I think this idea of a climate emergency or climate alarmism, as I would call it, is not justified. Because what's really being said is that we should panic. In fact, Greta Thunberg, the kind of poster girl, uh, of this movement, although she's, she's really a child, she's just a kind of face for the movement, has explicitly said, we should panic about it. And I think the worst possible thing that should be done is to panic about it. I would say, to the extent that it's a problem, what we need to do is to move forward, not to move back. So to the extent that we face problems, or limits, as the uh, environmentalists call them, they say there are limits, so therefore we need to restrict consumption, that's exactly the wrong attitude. What we need to do is to find ways to overcome the problems that we face. So, for example, they say we need to ration air travel. People should travel less. Now, I was very excited by a piece of news that I stumbled across uh, last week, but got hardly any coverage in the media, which is that in China, they had the maiden flight of an electric aircraft. So, yeah, admittedly, it was just a maiden flight, you know, it was a light aircraft, but they managed to do that. And that shows potentially what we can do, because if we can do that on a large scale, we can have air travel without carbon emissions. Technically, it's possible. Yes, it will need investment. Yes, it will be a, a tricky thing to do. 
But it, it can be done, and it's not science fiction. It already has been done on a small scale. So what we need to do, including to tackle time, climate change, is not to say, oh, no, no, no. There are these natural limits, which is what Anne Pettifer and Naomi Klein and all these Green New Deal advocates say. There are these natural limits and we can't transcend them. Yes, we can transcend them through new technology. We can have, just to use that one example, we can have electric aircraft, if that's the way we want to go, so that we can fly more. So it's not just rich people who overwhelmingly fly more than poor people. The public as a whole can fly more. We can solve the problems of climate, to the extent they're problems, and we can solve uh, economic problems, but not through the Green New Deal, for a diametrically opposite approach to economic policymaking and problem solving. Thank you, Daniel. Sir Roger. My goodness, where the heck am I going to come down on this one? Phil, I don't envy you your job whatsoever, <laughs> making all this lot come together. But it is worth, for a moment, I think, reflecting on just how far we've come in the, in the terms of climate and environmental awareness. For me, the Blue Planet, too, almost marked, a kind of, marked the moment when the whole of society not only became aware of, of, the, of the plastics and, and the oceans, but everybody, everybody suddenly took off in concern. And, and since that time, it's just been one... There's been ever-increasing news, news diet of weather and, and fire disasters around the world, including in northern Europe, fire, forest fires all over Sweden and Germany this summer and last summer. We, we've also had a very sobering report from the IPCC. We, uh, we saw Brexit pushed out of the headlines by Mrs. Thunberg uh, in a remarkable way. Um, I rather agree that I don't think uh, we need the, the, the sense of crisis, but she was certainly focused everyone's attention on the issue. Uh, as a banker... Um, I think there's a fundamental challenge which, um, which we, we have also, I think, begun to address, and that is that there is a market failure that comes when societal costs don't get taken into account. It's this tragedy of the commons, which was a 19th century William Foster Lloyd, is an economist, his classic name for the dilemma, that no market player today, nobody today with their short-term investment in the horizon, needs to take responsibility for negative consequences far off in the future. Mark Carney said exactly the same when he talked about the tragedy of the horizons. No one needs to take responsibility for long-term consequences beyond my short-term traditional investment horizons. And it's a failure of traditional capitalism. And we have to face that, and I therefore think it's an area of market failure where governments can make a difference through taxes, through limits on business. The EU has been very active in this area. Many European um, countries uh, have been. And I think now we understand that in finance, the question is how do we react? And... I agree that we need, in essence, I think we need to move from an economic model that relies on resource depletion to an economic model, a growth model, that, that doesn't rely on resource depletion, especially as it has the potential to generate huge additional economic benefit. This is a problem in a world where the population is constantly going up. But uh, nonetheless, it's one we have to meet. And it's this challenge, this dilemma, that gives to me a banker, someone who believes in capitalism, it gives the economic rationale for stronger government involvement through taxes, through incentives, through legal change, and through investment for them to get involved. For instance, renewables growth, I think, is not fast enough. And depending on your view of the effects of climate change, which we can discuss, we need to move much faster to arrest the climate crisis before it's too late. It also makes sense. Renewables are cheaper than they now than, the, than their gas equivalents, coal equivalents by far. Therefore, it's a very good investment to be making. There's real growth there to be had. 
So I think there's a real, the really powerful incentive for societies to speed up the transition process through any just legal process there can be. I think politicians understand that. It's no surprise that it's become headlines for both parties in the election run-up, and it's going to become much more, I'm quite sure. So what does this say to me about a new Green Deal, or at least to renewed engagement by government with business in bringing about the transition? I think the time is right. I think the public and society are demanding it. I think the markets are ready for it. Indeed, the markets are already working in that direction. There's such a thing as a green bond. It's a very beautiful product. If you believe anything in banking can be beautiful, it's a very beautiful product. It's a combination, a triangulation between society, between academic science, and between finance. Um, there's also a huge rise in the, in the amount of investments that big pension funds are making into ESG, environmental social governance. Labeled, these labeled ESG labeled investments are all the rage across the spectrum. So the finance industry is definitely woken up. Green bonds aren't yet seen much in this country. They're an international investment. We hope will come much more here. And it's one reason we set up the Green Finance Institute uh, earlier this year, which followed on from a green finance strategy by the government, which followed on from a green finance initiative by the government, many going back four or five years. So financiers have definitely woken up, and they're getting increasingly involved. This institute is financed by the government in the City of London. It's led by bankers and it's positioned as the main interface between public and private sectors regarding the development of international, sorry, of environmental finance in the UK. Its CEO is a banker. It's sitting there as a main forum between government and pri private sector to sort out exactly these detailed issues of how we accelerate growth, how we accelerate investment into good, green, carbon-reducing, environmentally beneficial biodiversity-preserving projects. They're very much up there on the agenda. I'd like to see a much more active green mortgage market. The question is, how do you get the lower interest rate that you want on a green mortgage to make it work? How do you, how do you verify that? How do you get it in, into, the, into the, the building structure effectively? Um, I'd love to see a green ISA. I'd love to, all of us to have an extra 5,000, 10,000 pounds on our savings schemes for a green ISA. And you say, well, what is green? How do you define green? What looks like green? You get into the whole taxonomy, the definitions of what green is. It's possible. We're working on it. It's going to happen. You heard it here. Um, what I'm not sure about is this word deal. And I don't want the efforts that we're making on an environmental side to be diluted by a great big social um, side to it as well. It has to be a just transition. It has to be something that works for people. But I don't want to dilute the efforts that we're making by calling it a deal and adding in a million other non-environmental social goals. I'm sure they're good, they're excellent, I'm nothing against them, want to work with them. I work for a Swedish bank, not a kind of a... Uh, but it, it's, um, I'd, I would like to see a, a, a new green, uh, renewed government engagement into, into the whole green uh, finance area, to, and encouraging investments. I don't like the word deal. Thank you very much. Thank you. you didn't have to show me the name. Thank you. Uh, finally, Vicky. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I think what's really interesting is that what's come out of it already is that the system as we have it at present doesn't quite allow for the externalities to be properly priced into any decision-making that we do. So we're not pricing the problem with the environment in the long term. We tend to have a very short-term view of the world, and that's not just businesses, but it's also as individuals. Uh, our discount rate, in other words, uh, says that I really care about what's going to happen tomorrow, and I care a lot, lot less about what's going to happen in 10, 20, 30, 50 years' time. And what I think has really happened is that the, the Extinction Rebellion um, movement, uh, particularly among the young, has moved this discount rate uh, 
uh, to a considerably lower one. In other words, you actually are uh, concerned, or the youth uh, are much more concerned about the planet, and they want action now. And it's interesting that what was mentioned earlier is the, the climate change review that we did in the government. Uh, Nick Stone, who was the principal uh, uh, author of it, with a lot of help from the rest of us in the civil service, uh, had serious problem because he looked at the economics. Uh, science was already there, but it's really the economics that brought it to life uh, at the time, and there's been so much more discussion uh, since. Um, because what he did in his calculations of the cost of dealing with climate change, he made it very clear that, that the way we should be looking at it is with a very, very low discount rate, because actually the cost of leaving it to later is going to be so much greater than if we deal with it now. So there is a reason for panicking, in inverted commas, uh, because actually it makes good economic sense to do something as soon as we possibly can. Uh, but of course, what we do has to be still based on evidence in terms of what works and doesn't work. And also, of course, people's acceptance. People are accepting it a lot more, but as we've been hearing, the question is, are they also going to accept uh, hugely higher prices for the things they do, or the lack of availability of flights, or, as we heard, not eating any meat? Because, of course, if you are to price those externalities properly, then you need a proper carbon tax. In the UK, you will need a border tax. The EU is already talking about this. What that means is that we have been exporting our carbon production to other countries. Um, and, of course, that doesn't help the environment overall, and we're going to be affected by that ourselves. So we're fooling ourselves if we really think that we made a difference. But I think it is interesting to see what has actually happened in the UK. We have, on paper, done incredibly well. We have been cutting CO2 emissions faster than any other developed economy. Um, if you look at where we are by comparison to 1990, we have cut our CO2 emissions by 38%. If you look at the overall greenhouses, greenhouse emissions, we have cut them by over 40%. So actually, we have uh, achieved a significant amount, and, but the majority of that has happened because of renewables. We've moved... Uh, our production of energy considerably more towards uh, uh, things which are very good for the environment. Uh, we haven't really changed very much our transport emissions, although obviously people still drive lots of cars. We have reduced the amount of miles that we drive. Um, we've cut our transport emissions by about 7% over that period, which is fine. We have done practically nothing in relation to housing, which is quite difficult to do, uh, and also what businesses and business buildings emit. So an awful lot more needs to be done there. But it has been done reasonably fast and reasonably well. Uh, the question is, where do we go from here? And are people going to be prepared to accept uh, the increase in prices that absolutely are needed for the rest? And also, at the end of the day, you have to wonder whether what we do uh, makes any real difference. I mean, we talked about plastics. Uh, of course, that's an EU policy. It's not Michael Gove saying we're going to be pricing plastic. I, when I went to Greece this summer, everyone pays exactly what we pay for a plastic bag as well in the shops. Uh, so these are EU directives. There have been EU directives on, on achieving the reduction in emissions that uh, we have seen, that we have had to follow. Uh, it's been left, unfortunately, to each individual country to do anything they want on the renewable side to actually achieve it. So we have 
policies, policies that are not at all in line with each other. In one place there's more nuclear, in another place there's more solar, etc., which doesn't actually give you those economies of scale that you want and doesn't tell you what the best policy is. We here have decided to invest in nuclear, which of course uh, is going to end up with us paying an awful lot more for energy than would otherwise be the case. But that's a decision that was made by the previous government. So uh, the EU's New Deal is meant to take that a step forward and you have just uh, perhaps have been, you've been hearing that the new head of the European Commission has announced that in her first 100 days she's going to have a serious, uh, and I'm sorry I'm using the word deal, she's going to have a serious program in terms of achieving this, uh, the, the uh, uh, net neutral by 2050. Um, and it's very ambitious, and it depends, of course, whether we're still in it or not, what we're going to have to do uh, in the EU, I mean, uh, ourselves. Uh, but I think what is worrying, as we look at, at the cost, not only the cost of carbon tax, but also whether we will end up being pay, you know, paying for these things, whereas the rest of the world perhaps continues to do their own thing. The US is a big question mark. Uh, the costs of the New Deal, uh, Green Deal, that Elizabeth Warren is putting forward, the Democrats are putting forward, is estimated at you know, over 20 trillion US dollars. And of course, they also want to do all sorts of things with welfare, uh, health care, and so on. The question is, where will the money come from, uh, is one of the questions. The other one is, what happens in the developed, developing world? If you look at China, they have just announced that they're opening another 27 coal mines. Um, they are, of course, doing all the other things too because they need the energy. And if you look at what there is on the table now in the EU, that will reduce emissions by 2030 by uh, something like 1.5 billion tonnes of CO2. At the same time, on current projections, the rest of the world will have increased their own emissions by 8.5 billion tonnes. So that's a real issue that we have to, to look at. And, they, and the final thing is, how do you finance it? Uh, yes, Angela said she doesn't really want to worry about you know, whether it's debt or not. I mean, the EU is now, right now having a big debate about um, whether to use the European Central Bank as a way of financing this through green quantitative easing and the green bonds that, that were just uh, mentioned as well as a possibility. Is it legal? Is it illegal? What is it going to do to prices? Is it going to distort the way the market works? Big debates going on right now with some countries, like Germany, quite reluctant to get into this uh, business at all. Uh, the question is, where does it leave us? Um, if there are all these debates going on uh, and there is no real unanimity across in terms of how you deal with this issue and where countries uh, work on this in a different pace. So, yes, of course, uh, very good that we have now reduce our discount rate, and we care uh, very much about doing something now. But the question is, will the right thing be done? And I somehow doubt it. Thank you. Great. Well, that uh, certainly covered all the bases. <laughs> is it a disaster? Is it something that we need? Is it essential? Is it something we need to do immediately? Is it an emergency? How broad should it be? Is, I think, a, a broader discussion as well. Should it focus on the green, or should it uh, uh, broaden out to uh, a broader package of issues, um, which uh, uh, some people have indicated might not be the best thing. Okay, so really covered the whole range. So over to you. We'll take three or four at a time and then get the panel to come back in. So you can begin in the middle there, and can I have the other microphone up the front here as well, please? Yep. Hi. Yeah, I'd like to address the point about... Uh 
a Green New Deal or fighting climate change would require us to consume less. Consume. So um, my wife and I have been consuming less recently because we've been trying to save money, be frugal. We want to save up to buy a house. We're a long way off, but you know, we're doing what we can. And the realization we've had is that, you know, I think a lot of people have this realization, is that you know, it, save it. We've, we've been able to save a lot of money with basically no impact on our happiness or our quality of life because we've been able to save money not by depriving ourselves of all the things that we need and that make us happy, but just by cutting back on all the, all, all the, all the crap, you know, all the pointless bullshit that everyone spends their money on all the time. I mean, we spend so much money in, in d developed countries on, on just unnecessary junk because it's easy and because it's advertised to us. I mean, how, how many people buy a new iPhone every year even though their current one perfectly, works perfectly fine just because Apple have released the new one and everyone feels like they need to, you know, they've got to get the latest shiny gadget. I, and you know, the environmental damage done by all this consumption is enormous. So my point is maybe consuming less isn't such a bad thing. Okay, great. Here. Yeah, my name is Julian Newton, and uh, the organisation I set up, a company called Grand Northern, and it's dedicated oh, to... Sorry? Can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, my name is Julian Newton, and the organisation I've set up is, is entirely for the development of um, zero emissions transportation. And I've had a really, really wonderful experience today, a, a brand new experience, and I'd like to just shake this gentleman by the hand. <laughs> a banker with a conscience. Oh, thank you very much. So, uh, but... I just, I, I couldn't believe what this gentleman was, was saying, Daniel. He's wrong on every level. We're at, the, we're at the cusp of the Green Revolution. And do you remember the, um, the Clampets? Jay Clampett. How one day he was shooting at some crew, uh, food and out came a bubbling crude. It came out of the ground too easily. And that's why we are where we are now. And it never needed to happen. When I was a kid, I used to have, we used to have a, a milk float, it was battery-powered milk float, 40 years ago. The technology was there, it's just that it was so easy got to, to Rudolf Diesel, develop diesel engine, and et cetera, the rest is history. And what I need is, is some advice, because I've got this, this, this company, and we've got these wonderful initiatives, but I've tried and tried and tried to get engagement with, with, with this conservative government, and it's like platinum fog. It really is. Okay. Thank you. There. Uh, next to you. Cool. I want to um, sort of back up Daniel a little bit. Um, so when, uh, when we hear the phrases that we need to change the way we travel, we need to change the way we eat, what we really mean is we need to force you to change the way we travel and we need to decide uh, what you're going to eat. And I think uh, that... Uh, authoritarianism or socialism via the, uh, via the back door is a very scary price to pay for something that is essentially a PR stunt for the UK who even reaching net zero emissions will make, there is no science that will make any impact into the uh, climate uh, overall. And so really what we're doing here is to feel smug uh, to look good and to set an example as much as anybody else follows our example. Like, the other point is that rich, well-developed, prosperous countries are cleaner and they are more efficient. 
And the countries that are actually causing any sort of environmental problems are the ones that are not rich and are not prosperous. And therefore, the solution is not for us to uh, impose austerity on a level that we haven't seen before, but it is to raise the poor and developing countries in the rest of the world up to a level like ours, where they can be as efficient and smart in the use of their energy and technology. And we should stop thinking too close to home. That's my opinion. Okay, great. I'll take one more at the front here, and then we'll come back to the platform. Thank you. Um, I'm a fund manager. I'm not a banker, but I'm an investor in the city, and I think it's absolutely right to say that the mood is changing in the financial services, the rise of ESG, the rise of green finance is, is definitely a thing. Um, and so there is a sort of consciousness of what's going on, um, particularly with climate change, because within ESG, E seems to be the biggest and most important part. So the question that I have, having been a long-term investor in the oil and gas sector, is what is the future for that sector? They appear to be the arch-villain uh, in this whole saga. Um, they are the ones that have got the stuff out of the ground. We may have burnt it in our cars, but they uh, have provided it to us. Not only that, but they've also confused the science over the last 30 years or so in a way that means that in a period that we've known the dangers of climate change, we've actually doubled the emissions, the amount of uh, carbon in the atmosphere. So the question to the panel really is, what do you think the future for that sector is? Okay, that's great. So a package of those, or a group of those questions all really overlap in terms of is consumption the problem, is consuming fossil fuels the problem, uh, or is this whole thing uh, a bit of a, a bit of a made-up problem, uh, and that the real solution is, as I've been said over there, development of the uh, development in poorer countries. Okay. Angela. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, so if I... Uh, want to talk about some of the points that um, around consuming less and um, the point around author authoritarianism um, as, a, as being the, the mechanism by which we force people to change how they consume. Um, so there's lots of evidence that shows, first of all, that when our GDP, our outputs, um, is rising, we're not always improving our quality of life. So GDP is an indicator of how prosperous um, how well we're um, deploying our resources to make ourselves happy. We already know it's not, it's not working very well. Since about 1970, um, GDP rises have not made us feel any happier. Um, and that's as true in rich countries as it, as it is in, in poor countries. I think after you reach a certain level of income, you know, more wealth is, is, uh, is not necessarily improving your life. And I think the point um, made first about the type of consumption we have, you know, um, and how that actually is sometimes driven by advertising, you know, competitive behaviour to, to do, have things and buy things that actually, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of parts of the system that do that. But it, however advertisers manipulate our, our psychology, you know, we're probably not going to deal with that. But what we sh can deal with is the externalities point that Vicky raised. So I think basically in terms of um, flying as we fly now or eating as we eat now, what we're saying, I think, if we say we can't do anything to change that, is we should say that we should continue to let people who are doing things which hurt the rest of society carry on, just because that's the way it is at the moment. So just because at the moment we have zero um, tax on, on fuels for planes, they pay no, um, they don't pay normal VAT on, on a flight, that we should just carry on doing that forever. Similarly, because that, that, agriculture 
um, where it's got deforestation that's, that's uh, devastating uh, parts of uh, Brazil, which are absolutely essential to us re reaching our climate targets, because that happens at the moment, and that's how we get our beef, we should just carry on doing it. So I think you're, you're assuming that everything we do to the system is currently working perfectly, markets are working perfectly, and any change will be some authoritarian um, change. What I'm saying is we should cost in those things, and we should provide people choices so that something that's healthier... Um, and better for society becomes the, the default option. So I would, we, we are very honest about, uh, in WWF about talking about asking people to eat less meat. Um, that is not necessarily becoming vegan or vegetarian, but it is less, eating less than we eat at the moment. And we're very honest about um, frequent flyer levy, which we want to introduce. 50% of UK, fly, UK Britons fly more than any other country in the world. We are very high users of, of, um, of our airports and we want to build more. Um, 10% of the people who fly in Britain use 50% of the flights. If you could introduce a frequent flyer levy for um, after your first, first international flight, and it wouldn't affect 50% of the people in the country, you could introduce it after two flights, it still wouldn't affect 80% of people in the country. There are some people, 10% of people, who are flying all the time, and that's where the frequent flyer levy would come in. And I think that's perfectly, a perfectly reasonable thing for us to do, and very sensible, given that is the area that's actually increasing emissions at the moment. Thanks. Okay, um, so many interesting points and so many to respond to, but I'm going to take just two of them. Um, I think it's very important that we engage with the oil and gas companies. There's no point saying to an unruly child, I'm going to ban you out of my house simply because you're unruly. You try and change the behavior of the child. Um, and already we have some fantastic examples of change by the major oil companies, such as the Danish Oil and Natural Gas Company, which no longer produces any oil and na natural gas. It's now called Orsted. It is the world's biggest wind farm manufacturer. Equinor is halfway through a similar journey. For Norway, oil and gas country, Equinor, the, the old stat oil company, now halfway through becoming a completely renewables-oriented country without banning them from every investor's portfolio. And if you look at the way that BP and Shell are already realizing the damage that can happen to their share price through not getting the story right, they too are on a transition path. And I believe that in 10 years' time, we'll look back at BP and Shell. They may have changed their names even or whatever. We will find much more, much more um, you know, people who are working with the transition in a good way rather than working against it. This is a major part of the EU's discussion about the taxonomy of, um, of uh, green, which is that you should engage with the oil gas. You should not ban them from your pension portfolios, um, but work with them and, and put pressure on them, of course, to be moving in the right direction. Um, so that, that's one point, is I think engaging with them. The, the, the second is, the, is that I think markets are much better and more efficient than often we very often realize, but we need to manage the markets in the right way. So when it comes to things like uh, investing in cars and investing in, uh, in renewables, there's very clear evidence that renewables are pretty close to where IT was, computers were in the 1960s, or steam cars or tractors were 100 years ago. When tractors first came out, everyone said, these will never work, horses are so much cheaper. If a horse dies, I just replace it cheaply, whereas a tractor's terribly expensive to replace, they'll never take off. That was 100 years ago. And as the volumes start to rise and the prices come down, you get this typical cross curve that happens. It's happening now with renewables. So there's a very good argument for investing in renewables right now, um, as there is in looking at tidal um, at carbon capture, at tidal power, at uh, hydrogen for sure. Japanese all over hydrogen. It's going to be, I think, the next big new thing. Fusion, according to Boris, is uh, out there somewhere. I really wonder if that will ever happen. But um, so I would just say work with the markets, manage them. That's exactly what my, our new Green Finance Institute is doing, to get it right in that space. Thank you. Uh, Daniel. 
Uh, yeah, uh, I could spend an hour answering all the questions, but I, I won't. I'll just stick to one point on, uh, on consumption. Uh, and I welcome the fact that it is becoming clearer in this discussion that advocates of the Green New Deal are talking about squeezing consumption, and they're entitled to do that. I think Vicky was very good on the, the mechanisms through which it could happen. So you might still have the same amount of money in your pocket, say you earn, I don't know, say £500 a week. Uh, you might still have £500 in your pocket, uh, but with higher prices and with all sorts of levies on flying and other things, that £500 or whatever the, the amount is will buy less. So that could be a mechanism through which it will happen. Or if you're forced to uh, buy an electric car rather than have a conventional car, you have to spend more on that car. Again, there, there are different... Well, certainly not now. It is not cheaper to buy an electric car. Well, why aren't people doing it? Why aren't people doing it? So... There's no doubt at all, it seems to me, that the Green New Deal means curbing consumption. Now, if, if people want to do that, if you want to do that, I don't criticise you. It's absolutely reasonable if you as an individual, so I don't know your name, the guy in the middle, if you want to consume less because you want to save for a mortgage and buy a house, that's absolutely fine. I would not criticise you for that. What I, what I would criticise people for, though, is when they try to impose that on, on the rest of society. I think that is absolutely unforgivable, to force people through one means or another, to consume less. I think, you know, that, that is uh, well, just completely good. wrong. Please, please. And I think also, the other thing about consumption, you can cut consumption, but it does not solve the problem of the economy. And I see all the other panellists have more or less kind of not gone into this territory. The key problem the economy faces is we have not managed to increase productivity. And squeezing consumption does not solve the problem of raising productivity. In fact, it does the opposite. And if people are serious about solving our economic problems, and the Green New Deal is meant to be at least partly about that, I want to hear them talk about how we raise productivity or alternatively why they think that's not possible or not desirable. Vicky? Um, just say so there is, of course, a lot of waste in, in production and what we buy, uh, and you're quite right to, to say that we've force-fed all sorts of things that we perhaps we don't actually need. Uh, for profits to be made by, by firms. But, of course, that was, you know, the Galbraith had written about the sort of industrial society where this is what happens all the time. Um, and so it's been going on for, for ages. Uh, some people are wise to this, some are not. But the interesting thing is that, of course, by having trade and having all these sort of things come in relatively cheaply from elsewhere, it has, whether we like it or not, uh, brought up quite a lot of people out of poverty in, in poorer countries. Uh, so we can't say we're going to stop all that um, completely, but we have to see what the impact is. And, of course, if we have a carbon tax, we have a carbon border tax, then that's going to affect production, uh, that's going to affect trade um, that comes from other countries, even though it's probably going to be good for the environment, it's going to be bad for growth. So we have to, to, to balance things out and also make the right decisions. So we talked about the price mechanism. The price mechanism can be used in a very silly way, and we did that with diesel. So when you have one particular target to reduce CO2 emissions, uh, what you do is you achieve that target, but you mess everything else up, uh, which is a law which, uh, which seems to be working every time. So we reduced the price for diesel, um, encouraged lots of people to buy those cars, and then, of course, we had different types of, of emissions which have been incredibly bad for the environment, and us anyway, rather than on CO2. We've talked about airlines. Airlines, of course, account for just 2% at present of, of global um, uh, CO2 emissions. There are huge efforts, as we've been hearing. Nevertheless, because there is focus on them now, they were not included. You know, there is a system in, in Europe called the EU ETS, which is uh, trading permits for emitting 
uh, CO2. Uh, it hasn't been working fantastically well because, uh, because of the financial crisis. Uh, industrial production has been you know, either flat or going down in a number of places, and, and too many permits were issued, and the price of carbon therefore was very low. It hasn't quite had the right effect, but they are being tightened. Airlines are now coming, and shipping is also another one that's really worried about being included in this, but they are also making changes uh, in what they do. Now, uh, it means that the way that we do, we use the, 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 the system may not be perfect at present, and we need to really think of how those price signals can be done with more information uh, than what uh, we've got at present. And then finally, on, 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 on the use of fossil fuels in the future, I have to declare I used to work for Exxon uh, when, in fact, oil prices were collapsing uh, at the time in the mid-'80s. Uh, and we thought, well, what's going to happen to oil in the future, uh, in the future and all that sort of stuff, because no one really wants it. Actually, the use of, of uh, fossil fuels per uh, unit of output has gone down, of energy generally, has gone down very significantly. And it's one of the things, and that's going to be a continuing trend. But renewables, unfortunately, you can't store them um, for the moment, but things are changing. So we need to invest hugely, I think, in science to, to make that possible. So we still need the backup that's there. And here we're going to have Arabco just announced from Saudi Arabia that they're going to list in the stock exchange, I think, London. That's going to attract a lot of attention. So there is still a future for it. And frankly, if you look at ways of achieving a reduction of CO2 in the short term, using natural gas rather than oil actually reduces your, your emissions very considerably. And that has to be something that is, uh, is used in the short term but with an aim of just getting rid of that or completely decarbonizing fossil fuels in the future. That requires huge amounts of money. One final, final little thing about, uh, about what we can do with other countries, which I think is such a good point. Uh, again, when the uh, uh, Stern review was produced, and also when you look at the Paris Agreement, there is a huge amount that needs to move into adapting to climate change, which we are supposed to give to uh, needy countries, plus uh, transfer of technology so that they can... Uh, also minimize the emissions that they have. We have done hardly any of this. So it is the Western world that hasn't kept its own uh, promise in terms of what type. Um, sometimes the, 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 the recipients haven't wanted it, like Brazil is saying, we don't want any money to stop um, uh, cutting down trees. Uh, but I think there needs to be a complete rethink of how we help the adaptation and the, uh, the changes that need to be made in those uh, developing countries. Thanks. Okay. Where the, yeah, um, this one guy here, and this gentleman here. Cool. Hi. Um, great points from everyone. I'm really enjoying the discussion. Um, I'd like to address uh, Daniel as well. He sort of presents this view that the Green New Deal and increased productivity are opposing views. Um, I'd like to offer the, the, the opposite suggestion, that green tech is highly productive, um, and that if you talk about electric planes, obviously that is going to make some people a lot of money. That's like going to increase our prosperity if we can fly electrically. However, getting there, quite expensive. Those costs need to be spread um, across different layers of society. That's what the Green New Deal is trying to do. A green future is a future where we don't have the fear of running out of resources or have the fear of a polluted world. That's productive to me. That raises the, the ceiling of productivity. However, not going that way, not acting now, will, for the UK specifically, we'll get hotter summers, colder winters, will reduce productivity, we'll get a lot of um, climate refugees, that will reduce productivity. Um, that's not productive. Um, I think a step forward to investing and developing the technology is also going to bring the UK forward in terms of, we can export that stuff. 
you can like there are technologies out there that can store the energy of renewables. They're not applicable on scale at the moment. If we invest in that, if we're the first ones to figure that out, everyone's going to want to buy that. It would it would make us probably the most prosperous economy in the world. Um, I, yeah, I just would like to finish with a question because just the statement's kind of boring. Um, I'd like to ask you if you want to increase productivity through other means, not through the Green New Deal. What are your suggestions? Okay. Uh, it's the is there the political will there to deal with this because. We have a government, or the past government, junked the, uh, uh, the rules for, no <coughs> zero, for zero carbon on new build. Um, we, since then, they've all said what a good thing it is to have a climate emergency, but nothing has, uh, has actually happened as a result of it. So the question is, is the political will there? Um, hi, good morning. Thank you very much for uh, this discussion. It has been very interesting. Um, I'm not an activist, to be honest, but after having heard some of your comments, Daniel, I'm really considering joining like Extinction Rebellion. Um, and precisely because I think we have a moral duty like to our future generation, to ourselves, but to the truth, to just the simple concept of truth. You said that Inagivenda was an absolute, like absolutely inefficient. Well, that's not true. Like according to a latest report in 19, well, 2019, it has appeared to be quite efficient, at least in Europe. Um, Furthermore, uh, so, so yeah, so I don't think the question is, do we need a Green New Deal? And it's true, New Deal is not a nice term, but let's say program. I think we must. Now comes the question of like the finance. How do we finance it? And finance implies credits. Credits implies debt. And I'm a student in uh, sustainability. So I'm wondering in terms of a critical perspective, what is the, the idea behind uh, the... Um, behind the notion of debt, how is it not like, completely paradoxical with the simple notion of sustainability and our future generation? Thank you. Thank you. Um, Here. My, my, my comment is about um, what we need are solutions and options. I started to think with, with this, it's a bit like the Brexit debate in the young, the young who look a long, long way ahead at doing one thing and the older possibly different, may, 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 maybe that's the case, maybe not. The uh, thing is, say with options, is on the one hand, I don't drive, um, I try and keep the thermostat down, what have you. I do fly a fair bit. A uh, comment with that would be, it's fine having, say, a carbon budget. I'm not sure how you would do it. <laughs> It's right limiting flights. For instance, I have, have, have a sister, she's in Switzerland, comes back to see some other quite often. I know people with boyfriends, girlfriends, different, different, different countries. What happens if you do increase the price of flights and they drive? Now, I actually did worked out that if there's two of you driving, it's about equivalent to flying. If there's one of you, um, it's actually cheaper, to, it's actually less, less damaging to fly, what have you. But uh, why, why separate out uh, one uh, uh, particular area? I think I do know why, which is that um, people like uh, getting one thing, big plastic bags, what, what, what have you. But it doesn't actually make sense. We come to solutions. Um, I, 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 there, there definitely is a, a, a crisis um, with, with the environment. We need solutions. There are problems if you, if you have to reduce your lifestyle. So the answer is, if it costs, say, 3% of GDP, everything costs 3% more, that's fine, you know. It may have to be 5% for the richer, less for the... Uh, well, that's, that's right. But... What you need to be concentrating on is how do you get solutions? What about Algae, if you can power fights with Algae, all kinds of renewable energy? How about playing them up? It does give a better message. It is a bit less depressing. And whilst I think there's a problem, I would like, I would like to hear something a bit optimistic about it. Okay. And we'll take one more and then back to the panel. Uh, thanks very much. Um, well, it's good to hear Extinction Rebellion mentioned because I was uh, realising we're having a very civilised conversation and out there there's a, there's a discussion that in 10 years' time there will be a species extinction. 
Uh, so this long-term programming, I don't know what the returns are on your green bonds, but uh, if we've only got 10 years uh, to make it uh, happen, uh, then it might be a bad deal, and I, and I'm, I, and I won't be investing. Um, so, uh, so there's that. And the second point is, is uh, Angela was talking about, I think you said, I, I, I might be misquoting you, but I think you said uh, reward people for safeguarding the environment. And in the second contribution, you did mention Bolsonaro and, and Brazil and, and what, what have you. And I'm just interested, if we broaden this beyond the UK, the idea about what safeguarding the environment might mean for developing economies in the third world, where maybe some countries may want to uh, take down some areas of, of natural environment in order to build factories, in order to in increase productivity, in order to develop a, a first world economy. Uh, what's happening at the moment in many cases is that many uh, developing economies are being paid not to, de to develop in order to safeguard the environment. And I think that, I mean, my, for myself, I think that's reprehensible. Uh, so I'd just like to take your uh, um, view on it. And my final point, if you don't mind, is, uh, is on Daniel, because I mean, I'm just, just to kind of safeguard your point, I suppose. The idea, the idea of making savings uh, is different to increasing productivity. That, that's what I understand. And there's a lot of environmentalists out there who are talking about maybe not, in, not spending on drainage systems, but making them natural drainage, in which case you don't have to spend on drainage. So you've not spent the money, but it doesn't actually increase productivity. You know, it's just a nice saving from your bottom line. So in terms, I, I come back to the idea about consuming less, making things more efficient, I think is a good thing, yes? So if we can use less water, if we can use less energy, why would I complain about that? But I think there's a difference between that and increasing productivity, making more stuff, which in some ways goes against the environmental argument, which suggests that maybe we shouldn't be making more stuff in the first place, because obviously that's potentially damaging. Okay, thank you. Um, given us come back to Daniel, and there was that very direct question there. I'll take Daniel first in, the, in this round of responses. Yeah, Daniel. again, there's lots of things I'd like to respond to, but I know Phil won't let me, so i just focus on the things directly addressed to me. So, first of all, uh, the point... Uh, sorry. Sorry, uh, so I'll just focus on, on the questions uh, directed at me in particular. So, first of all, the question uh, near the front of the audience, which I, in fact, I kind of half agreed with you, not entirely, but I didn't think you were... Uh, entirely wrong at all in what you were saying. Uh, I mean, I th talking broadly in relation to the economy, I think what we've had over the past decade or so, a bit more than a decade, in broad terms, is quantitative easing. So in other words, the Bank of England pumping loads of money into the economy, just keeping things ticking over, but not resolving any kind of problems. The problems are still there. And I think what should have happened instead is rather than have that quantitative easing, companies should have been allowed to fail, and that they should allow there to, to be a kind of economic restructuring, a kind of creative destruction where companies are allowed to fail, old, business are, old businesses are allowed to go out of business, and uh, there's new businesses that come to the fore, and the government can help in that process. In fact, Phil is very modest, but he's written a whole book on this called, about, uh, called Creative Destruction, which talks about this in great detail. Uh, but having said that, I mean, I, I certainly think it, it's right that we should think in the long term, we should think about uh, technology, all, not entirely in relation to climate change, but I think that's part of, is important in relation to uh, climate change. But my argument is not that we shouldn't tackle climate change. My argument is, first of all, that it is a kind of long-term problem. It's, it's actually counterproductive to panic about it. And also that uh, we need to, rather than curb consumption, which is what the emphasis of the Green New Deal really is when you kind of scratch the surface, 
what we need to do is to find new technological solutions, invest in new technology. That was the point of the electric plane example, but there are lots of other examples that could be given as well. I think adaptation, which uh, Vicky mentioned, also has a role. In other words, not just uh, not curbing consumption, but uh, finding ways to adapt to climate change, building higher seawalls, for example, to prevent flooding. So I think there is a problem of climate change. I think we do need to develop new technology to deal with it. Uh, but I think that's not the entire economic story. I think the economic story is bigger than that. And I think the thrust of the Green New Deal is about uh, curbing consumption, which is different from resource efficiency, by the way. I think I, I don't agree with Austin at the back on that point, because I think curbing consumption, to my mind, means m people consume less. So, you know, they, they consumed 100 items last week, and now they consume 90 items. Resource efficiency might mean that you burn a certain amount of energy, and through that you actually, or a certain amount of oil, and you produce more energy from burning that amount of oil. So resource, resource efficiency, increasing resource efficiency, is a good thing, but curbing consumption, I think, is a bad thing. If people want to do it themselves, that's fine. We should not impose it on them. Yeah, um, thanks. Uh, I think there is political will. Uh, I mean, I, I, We've done, I'm not a politician, but I've worked a lot with the business um, the energy base, energy and industrial strategy. And there's, a, there's a, a, a very strong desire to engage in this sphere, but it is with a, a productivity growth investment angle on it. And it's where I come back again to the thing about markets. Markets can see a fantastic opportunity with the new technologies, and they are investing strongly. I think there's no better example than this Danish oil and natural gas. It's gone from being a kind of rather small, two-bit local domestic oil and gas player with a couple of fields to play with to one of the world's biggest um, wind farm manufacturers and suppliers. It is now, its market cap has gone through the roof as a result. And I think there, there are many other examples where we should absolutely be investing in the new technologies. It will raise productivity. It's going to support this man's um, um, electric cars. And, and these are the technologies of the future. So I, I see it as a productivity story, actually, not a, not a cutting, cutting back story. Um, so I think the political will is there, is growing, and it wasn't there two years ago. So where will it be in two or three years' time? Let's see. How do we raise the money? We raise the money through the markets like we do, like, we, like, we, like we've done before. These will be good projects with solid backing to them because they will have been well worked out by, by the businesses. There'll be a mixture of finance goes into it. There'll have to be some equity. There'll have to be some debt. Um, and, and so on. So I, don't, I just don't see a problem. There's lots of money. Maybe this gentleman can tell us more. There's lots of money looking for the right investments. Now, there's not a shortage of money, partly because of QE all over the place. Um, we'll come back to that. But so I don't think raising the money is the problem. If you're not investing in green bonds, what are you investing in? If you're going to invest in cash, you're not going to make anything on your pension fund at all. Green bonds, as I said earlier, are a lovely product to make you as much money as you would on any other. There's no reduction in yield, no reduction in credit quality, and you're investing in new technologies and renewables and all the rest of it in that way. So um, just, just one last point on carbon tax, which we talk about quite a lot, we've mentioned here, but we have a carbon tax in this country of around, I think, is it 12 pounds, 10, 12 pounds-ish, um, which is sort of okay, but it's not really much of a burden on industry, to be honest. They reckon it ought to be at least 20 or 30 to start making a real effect on businesses changing their behaviour. In Sweden, it's 90 pounds. It's 110 euros in Sweden. It has transformed the way that businesses look at their energy costs. And as a result, Sweden, good old Sweden, is a... Is a relatively cleaner country in the way that it sources its energy and the way it uses it. That carbon tax has been one tool, one tool only in, in doing that, 
um, but it has absolutely had an effect. Then you've got somewhere like Iceland. I mean, the word green is irrelevant in Iceland because everything's completely green, apart from the, the cars that they drive. So the, you, can, you, can see, you can see where societies have utilized their, 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 the possibilities and, and transformed and converted, as Denmark, Norway, um, Sweden are doing, as we are doing in this country. As Vicky mentioned earlier, we've had some real successes here on the, on the carbon side, which we shouldn't, we shouldn't downplay. Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, Sweden is the one country where uh, the population has been taking fewer flights, which is quite interesting. They've taken that very, very the seriously. Take the vote. <laughs> um, but it's a long way to get to Greece and, and where I come from, and, and some of the Greek islands are suffering as a result of the non-influx of Swedes that they were normally counting on, uh, unfortunately. But it's interesting, the, the story about uh, you know, driving across, which I think was, was really interesting. I also see that uh, you can reduce your thermostat. You're just with wearing a T-shirt, and I'm wearing three layers. Uh, where I'm Greek, so perhaps uh, different needs, different. Um, there is, of course, an opportunity cost in taking so much longer in, in going wherever it is, and you could have been doing some other interesting things like investing in new technology or whatever it is that you might be doing or campaigning. Uh, but, of course, we've got to bear in mind that electric cars uh, require a huge uh, electricity grid to be able to have the points to be charged. Uh, that requires an awful lot of energy and an awful lot of whatever it is that we maybe use, renewables and others. Uh, there may be ways of, of, of reducing the amount of extra electricity you need, uh, but, but that we haven't got, quite got to that point yet. And so, so there are always unintended consequences, if you like, with whatever it is that you produce, if you haven't quite thought about them uh, for the longer term. Um, so in terms of, of financing it, uh, when we mentioned QE, I, I did touch on that as well in my little bit at the beginning. Uh, there is a big debate now using the, the, the balance sheet of the European Central Bank, where actually QE resources are something like uh, you know, almost three, bit, three trillion, uh, in, in, in investing, using that money back into the economy and investing in the right technologies. It's not going to be sufficient, I'm afraid. So, uh, but if everyone does it, including the US and so on, then it's going to make a huge, huge difference uh, in this. And then, of course, again, when we're thinking about consuming less, which I think is, is an interesting uh, uh, point to be discussing, and I see it's encouraged everyone to think about it. Um, you know, we may consume less, but we might sit at home and, and play with our computer uh, or, or whatever, you know, watch Netflix or, or whatever. Well, the, the reality is that uh, the biggest energy consumers, uh, or, or, or sorry, energy, CO2 emission, um, whatever they are, producers, uh, CO2, um, uh, are the now the big uh, companies like Google, Amazon, and so on. And, and they are not taxed the right way. The price that we pay for the services, which is, of course, sort of uh, very little, except, of course, they get the, all the advertising and everything, and the advertisers and everyone else that has access to this, the system breaks down completely. We're talking about some sort of market signal. It's not there. So we need to work very hard in, in, in doing something about this. Angela? Uh, thank you. Um, I just want to knock this um, super austerity thing on the head because it's annoying me. Um, there is no way you can describe the amount of investment that we're going to have to make in homes, transport systems, um, changing uh, uh, how businesses um, produce their products, um, how we grow food as austerity. We are going to be spending a lot of money. Most of the conversation is, is, as the lady said at the back, about how we finance it. This is not austerity. This is huge investment. And the, most of the conversation that we've got to have with politicians is why they should do it. And Vicky's made the very good point that the earlier you do it, the cheaper it is. 
and the gentleman in the audience made the very good point, the earlier you do it, the more rewards you reap for your own economy from getting on the front of those ventures. So this is not austerity. Um, it's going to be a change in lifestyles. Um, some people might find those changes difficult to accept, but they are going to be they are going to be ones that we have to do. It is not only though about consumption. It is much more um, about um, what, how we produce things and how we in innovate. So as well as doing work on consumption, I'm a member of a um, Green Innovation um, Policy Commission. I'm a member of a, um, a, a group looking at how businesses are going to change and get opportunities out of this. It's not, it's not an either-or. It's not a case of, um, you know, that we're ignoring the opportunities to invest in uh, resource efficiency. I've been doing some work with a, a tech task force, which is looking at how we use... Um, 3D technology to print lighter um, cabin, cabins for Airbus so that they can be more resource efficient as planes. We have to do all those things, but we still have to fly less. Um, if we figure out a way of having electric planes, then we can all fly as much as we like. But until then, we need to find a way of doing that. And actually, some of the things we do in terms of putting those um, costs on the business will incentivize us to get to that point quicker. So that's the, the um, kind of the first point that I, well, a, a main point I'd like to leave you with here. This is actually about. Um, huge investment about better lives and about, um, about that being true internationally and in the UK. So there's analysis from the new climate economy that you can look at that shows the increase in jobs and increase in productivity that is forecast to come from this investment. And that is not even including, if you look at the work of Colotta Perez and the work of Dimitri Zengelis, who look at the innovation boosts that you get from the level of investment we get. We, don't, we can't even predict the level of, um, of productivity growth we're going to get, but it is expected to be significant. The waves of innovation that we've had from steam and um, um, digital will be repeated um, from the green innovations we get. When, once, you, once we kind of um, uh, start investing in these things, we, we won't know, we can't predict, we didn't predict how much cheaper solar would become, how much cheaper off offshore wind will become. Batteries have been mentioned. They are also expected to go on that exponential reduction in cost. Um, in terms of um, whether financing this is going to be sustainable, the lady who um, mentioned the energy vendor success also said, is it sustainable for us to, to have debt? And I said I didn't want to talk about it, but let me just say, say one thing. Is that we, we, started, um, we paid off the last war bonds last year. Um, that was the point at which we had to raise so much money to deal with funding the war in, um, in 1945 that we haven't finished paying them off until 2018. Nobody sitting here, I think, would resent the fact that that was what government did. We need to do the same thing again now. It is perfectly reasonable and sustainable for us to borrow. Uh, the UK, the idea that the UK was going to um, suffer from some kind of um, credit um, swap and we were going to be unfunded was, was completely unrealistic. We didn't need to um, stop um, borrowing at the level and impose austerity on ourselves before, and we don't need to do it now, certainly not for the types of investments we know that will have a positive return on our, on our economy. Um, and I think the last thing I would say in terms of the international... Got time to come back later. Can I, can I just make one international point? Because that, that was specifically made to me. Um, it's the, type, the things that the UK need to do. We are a relatively, you know, we're a relatively small country, a relatively small part of emissions. The thing we need to do is start to lead the way in the technologies that the rest of the world will need. And some of those are particularly important in farming. So I'm very concerned that the developing worlds, um, we aren't asking them just not to develop, but we are working with them to develop the technologies, technologies that they need to develop in a way that doesn't just follow the, the path we've had and takes different routes. And there's lots of things happening already in terms of um, energy grids, transport systems, mobile technologies, which means that they aren't having to pay the sunk costs of the heavy grids that we've got. But I think the most important um, space is in agriculture, where... 
if we have the very, um, fossil, uh, the very um, chemical intensive agricultural system we have in America, Australia, the UK, other parts of the world, in the, in the developing world, we will be in real trouble. Um, and we should not be just focusing on how we have agriculture that's not deforested and saying um, that's our main issue. We should also be focusing on not necessarily importing all our food from, sorry, importing all our food from uh, an Idaho dust bowl where the, the production is coming on the basis of having not a tree in, in a, you know, 100 acres and that can be imported into the UK where we've got much higher environmental requirements on our farmers. So that's Thank my you. main concern. Okay, last round and uh, now we've got lots of hands. Yes, there first. Hi. Uh, yeah, something I'd like to knock on the head, um, Angela, is the, the, your suggestion earlier that uh, we, need, um, we don't need more wealth. Um, I, think, uh, you know, I think that's quite a morally uh, reprehensible position to, to take, given that if you look around this, this country, which, this being the, the sixth, largest, sixth um, wealthiest country in the world in terms of, in terms of the size of the economy, you know, look at the uh, number of people... Um, number of people who don't have pension savings, the number of people, schools that can't afford teachers, people that can't get operations on the National Health Service, the rising number of people um, going to food banks. You know, there's an awful lot of poverty out there. And, um, you know, so that's, and, and yeah, we're, we're the sixth uh, largest economy in the world. So, um, you know, they're, they're, and look at all the investment you just talked about. If you want, if you want, I mean, I think something, something the panel does agree on is the need for investment in green technology. Well, if you're going to do that, you're going to need more wealth. And it's the countries that, that, that have that wealth that, that are, are able to, um, you know, lead, get cleaner economies and uh, are going to be able to reduce their emissions. Um, but just um, coming, coming, some, quick. Coming, coming to, um, you know, Daniel's point, I mean, so, so I think we, we've got to make the case for more wealth, but I think we need to do it better. I think we, it needs to be tied to a social project for redistribution, because the problem at the moment is, you know, when, when you say we need more wealth, people think that wealth is just going to the top levels of society. So, so I think we need to kind of, uh, you know, I, th I think we need a, a, a larger, larger scale um, project for redistributing that wealth across okay, society. Good point. Thank you. All right, we've got lots of speaking, so limit yourselves, please, because we've only got a few minutes. Here. Hi there. I, I suppose I wanted to come back on the idea that this isn't a sort of imminent crisis or something. Uh, so I work in the reinsurance industry, so effectively we're the capital markets that pay for disasters to insurance companies when these kind of things happen. And uh, Los Angeles, second largest city in the United States, now lives annually with the threat of huge forest fires destroying its suburbs and everything. We've seen $25 billion worth of loss over the last two years compared with low-level billions over the previous 10. Um, and that's an annual concern for them now. Uh, on the point of consumption and whether authoritarian consumption is something that we should be worried about, um, how many people disagree with the idea of duty on alcohol or sugar or um, tobacco products based on, the, based on the increased risk that they bring into a public-funded health sector that we all pay for? I feel like you pay relative to the risk that you introduce to the pool. It should be the same with global consumption. Thank you. Yeah, on Brazil and agriculture, which I, I was wondering when it was going to come up, um, it's possibly the most successful and dynamic part of Brazil's economy. And um, since the 1950s, Brazil's tripled its population, added 25 years to its life expectancy, and quadrupled its productivity in, in agriculture. In fact, it's, it kept Brazil in the recent uh, recession just, just above zero growth. And... It's halved, I think, since 1975 food costs, which means people have more income, they live longer, and there's more Brazilians. 
And that's come through industrial agriculture in Brazil. And it's the one sector, that, and in fact it's the only dynamic sector, unfortunately, for Brazil, in Brazil's economy at the moment. It's the only sector which has had such incredible benefits. So which part of those facts are a cost? You know, they seem to be entirely beneficial uh, to me. Yesterday in the carbon climate debate, someone said, one of the panelists said, I am not going to tell an African they cannot make kitten videos on YouTube. And that was a seemingly sort of crazy point, but it was in response to someone saying Africa should have wind farms and solar instead of nuclear power. And, you know, it wasn't a ridiculous point. How, what right do I have to tell anyone anywhere what they do with their time and their resources? Thank you. Me. Um, yes, I just want to say, uh, uh, I found what, Vicky's comment about Greece and um, the the Scandinavians not flying so much, quite shocking. Shocking that she so blithely points out an example of where people in Greece are actually suffering actual hardship, actual detriment to their standard of living because of virtue signaling by Scandinavians who, uh, and the difference it'll make, if it makes a difference at all, will be minuscule to the, to the carbon dioxide emissions. If, if, there, if, if there is even a problem to, to make a difference too. Even she would admit that the difference that they're, them not taking flights will make is absolutely measurably small. And yet she's describing a real measurable hardship to people in Greece. And, that she, and it's such a measure of how much she's drunk the Kool-Aid that she blithely, blithely thinks this is okay. This is fine. This is a price that Greece, Greek people should pay. Yeah. Yep. Well, uh, I learned something, that I must keep oil companies in my pension portfolio, <laughs> that I should work with markets, that green bonds mean for me a green orgasm, uh, and that there's electric cars, Angela, are as cheap as petrol-driven ones. You're talking about second-hand cars in petrol-driven ones, because I think you can pick them up for one or two thousand pounds, just a little less than Grant Shapps's 40,000 pound Tesla, and he's worried that, worries that there aren't enough uh, you know, charging points uh, in this country. We heard from one comrade from the Green Front, export or die, just like the man in the white suit, for any of you who know your Ealing comedies. We heard from over here that it's a moral crisis, and guess what? It's a moral crisis for future generations. I never heard that before. You know, it's only grow Brundtland from about AD 500, but never mind about that. Now, uh, I just want to point out, there's a clear class question here, Good. folks, right? World Wildlife Fund US. Contributions utilized $183 million. Uh, a total unrestricted uh, revenues, gains last year, $335 million. You will not find research and development, technology innovation, power station innovation on the websites of the World Wildlife Fund, the Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace, or any of them. They are not interested in innovation and in technology. They are only interested in imposing their class austerity on normal people in the street. Let's be very, very clear about that. Okay, we've got time for two more. Okay, very quick. I just wanted to make the point that people die from climate change. People die from flooding. People die from fires. No. Um, so that's just one very brief point I wanted to make. You know, 
People die from climate change too. And also, a very quick point to the gentleman sitting behind the woman in the green jumper. It's very rude to laugh at people while they're speaking. Is that your point? Okay. And the last one here, yes. Oh, the last one here. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm enjoyed the debate a lot, but there's something that I still have a basic question about. Is Daniel talks about how we'll have to reduce, how we'll have the reduction of consumption imposed on us, and um, productivity and how necessary productivity is to our future. There's a lot about green investment, but my simple mind, it seems that most of the big economies are based on this sort of throwaway consumption, the stuff that we, we throw away, that we, we bought 100 products this week and that we need to buy 110 next week, so we've got to throw away 100. Can we go for a green deal and still have enough productivity to pay for it? Okay, thank you all very much. Uh, we've got a minute each for the uh, panel. Okay, well, I'll take the Greek question, uh, because I'm Greek, and, and maybe you misunderstood, uh, because I do think it is actually uh, quite bad for the, for the Greeks. If we move into a situation where we stop people doing various things that affect others' growing communities, and I mentioned it already, in terms of trade, we have to watch what we do on the carbon uh, border tax, because it does have an impact on what happens in less developed countries. Um, and, uh, and therefore, we need to look at the pricing mechanism in the right way, and we need to probably divert loads of resources onto, into them uh, to be able to cope better with whatever the impact of climate change might be. So there has to be a real transfer from the rich to the, the poorer. And you're quite right. Um, uh, in fact, I tried to explain to some of my children um, that uh, the plane will still go, even if you're not on it, so the marginal difference you made is nothing. Um, and, of course, as I said, if all the other countries increase their flights and increase their own carbon emissions uh, by something like four times as much as we reduce them, then you've achieved absolutely nothing. So there has to be considerably clever in terms of what we do in the future, and that needs to be properly debated and not having reactions uh, just to please maybe the population in the short term and make people feel better. Uh, in the meantime, but actually achieving very little in the long term. Yes, I'm afraid, yeah. yes, just one point, I'm afraid. Um, yeah. <laughs> I give some perspective on the Sweden thing, because I'm working for a Swedish bank. When I, when I pointed out to somebody, uh, a Swedish friend, that they'd uh, had forest fires this summer and the share prices of the major forestry companies had gone down 10%, they're poor. So there was economic hardship, because food prices went up as well, and, and said all these things, you know, and she said, yeah but it was the best summer we ever had, because uh, they had more sunshine than usual. And that may be one of the reasons why they didn't all bomb off to Greece instead. Um, but that, wasn't, that wasn't my, my, my point. Um, the, uh, the, what is my point? I think I forgot <laughs> what it was going to be. Um, it's certainly, certainly the, the, I, I think what I'd like to end on, if I could just end on that, is, is to make a point that if we launch this Green New Programme, or whatever we call it, if we get greater government involvement, which I believe we can get and will come, I think, and I think the institute where we set up is to find those nitty-gritty, difficult, detailed levels of making it happen. We must be very clear about what we're trying to do. One story is about productivity, about investment, and about growth into new technologies, which we should do, because we will become the best country in the world. We're already a leader in, in, in wind farm development, offshore particularly. We will become the best in the world by investing in those areas that will help productivity. The other story is about reducing carbon dioxide, and it's a separate story. 
And I think the carbon dioxide story, we need to think back to reforestation. Trees are a wonderful thing for collecting carbon. We, we need to think about what the oceans can do in terms of this. There, there are many, many programmes which we can... That's a red card. <laughs> um, there are many, but, but let's be clear when we get the, the Green New Programme going, what we're trying to achieve with it. And there are separate issues here. Thank you. Daniel. Yeah, well, maybe just to look at the German example, because as I said, the Green New Deal has been tried in Germany, and despite what was said in the audience, I think it's been an absolute disaster. It hasn't done anything for the climate, and it's increased energy prices. This is a cover story from Der Spiegel, uh, a German news magazine from earlier this year, which basically says, mess up in Germany, uses the English word uh, Germany uh, in the cover. Uh, and, you know, this is, the Spiegel is like the Guardian. It's more kind of Guardian than the Guardian. It's really sympathetic to the Green New Deal. And yet they're arguing in their own cover story it's a complete mess. So what's happened? They've invested billions and billions of euros in the energy vendor. They've hardly uh, reduced carbon emissions at all, despite what people say their economy is not doing that well. Uh, and, in fact, look, look at what's happened. They, they've stopped or almost stopped using nuclear power uh, so what they're doing is they're importing energy from France, which is producing it with nuclear power, and they're using lignite brown coal, uh, which is the most dirtiest, you know, worst polluting kind of coal, uh, to produce energy uh, because of the complete failure of their investment. And people are saying this is a success. You, know, you don't have to take my word for it. If you think the Green New Deal is a good thing, Read about the, the German example. Read about the energy vendor. There's lots written about it in English. This cover story has been translated into English. And I would say it shows that the Green New Deal is the wrong approach. It's the wrong approach to solving the problems of the economy. It does not address those problems. And as it happens, it does not resolve the problem of climate change. Thank you. Angela. Um, um, there is lots of different versions of the Green New Deal. Everything that has happened in every country has not been successful. That doesn't mean it is not possible to be successful. Um, I am in no way advocating that we do not need to generate more wealth. I absolutely think this is the route that we will generate more wealth, and that some of the examples I gave in the Green, in the Green New Deal I propose are about making that also um, more accessible to um, that wealth more accessible to workers, um, to householders who are the poorest, so that they can make that transition. So if you want to have a look at the putting people at the heart of the transition collection, we talk about that. Um, I think I would just say... Um, we are in a crisis. We don't need to panic, but we need to act. We don't need to panic because we actually know what we need to do, so we need to act on that now. Um, and that way we'll get to a different future, a way of producing things differently, improving our, improving our lives, improving um, wealth, improving prosperity, and we should need to get there fast. Can we please thank the great panel we've had here? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, please visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash podcast.